No, no, not Caesar salad. The one where it's like the hunk of lettuce with like the stuff on top. The wedge. Oh, the wedge, you idiot. The wedge. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Remember, I was like, I've never had a yeah. wedge salad. Of course, before. he doesn't know what a wedge is called because he never had one. So he can't describe that it's just a fucking wedge. It's just right. a hunk of lettuce. It's not, it's not really a salad. You know? Anyways, we're, we're making some. So they're making big strides, really growing up. Very, yeah. very exciting, dude. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He won't have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. Oh, wow. I'll tell you the truth, this guy's starting to get on my nerves. You want to crown them? They crown their ass. But they are who we thought they were. And we let them off the hook. It's hot. It's hot out there. Let's, we all walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hello, everyone, and welcome to... The Gauntlet. I am one of your hosts, Eric Marsh, and as always, I'm here with... Andrew Stasulis. And... Ryan Saunders. The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast where one of the hosts picks a topic, and the other two hosts pick movies in response to that topic, and we bring them here and run The Gauntlet. Hell yeah. It's episode 19. The topic is... Autumn leaves. And wow, uh, once again, you know, I gotta say, uh, delivered on our promises here, I think, because we've got two films that uh, have autumn leaves in them. Lots yes, of, we do. And, that, and lots of them at that. And that's kind of, you know, that was sort of like the bare minimum requirement, I think, of this this topic was I want to see some leaves. I want to see, I want to lean into fall. You know, I'm a, I'm a warm guy. I like chillier weather. So it's very exciting to me when the season begins to change. And of course it's, uh, it's quite beautiful as well. Mm-hmm. So let's, uh, let's get it started. Uh, Ryan, why don't you tell us what you brought to the table? Gladly. I am also um, a warm guy. I run hot, as uh, I think a lot of a lot of the boys here on the gauntlet do. So it it, it is always welcome to join uh, the the autumn season. So um, yeah, I was searching around for different stuff, seeing you know what I could find in terms of trying to find stuff where leaves were quite present. Because yeah, I love the way leaves look on celluloid. You know, one of my first initial ideas was trouble with Harry, simply to share the anecdote about Hitchcock gluing leaves onto trees because when they arrived in the New England area they were filming, the leaves had already begun to fall. Um, what a psycho. <laughs> no pun intended. Psycho alert. <laughs> so anyways, I went with, um, I went a little bit of a different direction. I instead kind of looked at what I would call an urban autumn film. One that sort of communicates that chill uh, and that kind of comforting autumnal chill you feel in a big city while also getting a little couple glances at uh, some leaves. So I picked the 1987 film An Autumn's Tale by Hong Kong filmmaker Mabel Chung. The film stars Chow Yun-Fat in a wonderfully charming performance as Samuel Pang, and it also stars Cherry Chung in a radiant performance as Jennifer, who is a student who is on her way from Hong Kong to um, start school in America. And initially, part of her journey is she's going to meet up with her boyfriend, Vincent. But not only is Vincent too 
busy to pick her up from the airport. Uh, by the time she finally does encounter Vincent, he's got another girl in his arms. She's devastated, and as she's hunkering down, living uh, in the same flat with Chow Yun-Fat, a sort of quiet romance starts to develop between the two of them. And without, you know, getting too far ahead of ourselves, I will say this is a film much like the other film in this episode that is a romance with nary a single kiss between the two lovebirds on screen. And what we see in An Autumn's Tale is a like a beautiful, tender romance that is sort of developing over time but never explicitly addressed between the two leads. I guess I'll leave it at that because I do want to talk about how this romance develops and sort of where we end up in the film more on like a beat by beat basis. But it's a it's a beautiful film. It's got both like extremely wonderful location photography in New York before it became like cleaned up. It's got that nice like late 80s like yeah. gross New York look, but she also finds lots of beauty in that. Um, very like authentic spaces and apartments and restaurants it's got a great cast it's it's really high energy it's both like extremely moving and also quite funny at times and it's got just two wonderful performances from people that sort of like naturally fall into their own rhythm as autumnal lovebirds and it's also just nice seeing chow yun fat the heartthrob he is being like a nice like grizzled a cutie on screen uh, <laughs> so yeah so that is an autumn's tale from 1987 all right andy why don't you tell us what you brought i mean i feel like i should also point out that i run hot as well uh, <laughs> and love fall fall is my favorite season uh, i think if it's over 60 degrees outside, I start to sweat. So I just, I welcome this time of the year. And, and certainly living in Chicago, uh, you know, this time before winter hits, which can be quite unforgiving in our, in our beautiful city. So fall has always had a very special place in my heart. And uh, when I think of fall cinematically, uh, I have to turn to what I think is one of the most gorgeous depictions of that season in American cinema, which is in Todd Haynes' magnificent film from 2002, Far From Heaven. Uh, For those who haven't seen Far From Heaven, it's a film that is set in Connecticut, in Hartford, Connecticut, in 1957. Julianne Moore plays Kathy Whitaker. This very classic kind of idealized American housewife who very dramatically one day discovers that her uh, picturesque and seemingly perfect husband, Frank Whitaker, played by Dennis Quaid, is actually struggling with his closeted homosexuality. In a very dramatic moment, she finds him in the arms of another man. And her seemingly wonderful, envied, respected home life begins to crumble. The facade of this perfect family begins to crumble with this discovery. And as she grapples with the implications of what this means for her, for her children, for her, for her life, uh, she seeks solace and comfort in a new friend uh, played by Dennis Haysbert, who plays the gardener, Raymond Deegan. 
Uh, and Raymond Deegan is an African-American man. A, uh, he plays a widower who has now taken over his father's gardening business. And uh, one, one morning, Julianne Moore introduces herself to him in her, in her lovely garden in the, in the beautiful fall foliage of Connecticut in autumn and uh, strikes up a friendship with him. And this friendship begins to blossom into perhaps more than that as her marriage begins to deteriorate, she finds a growing attraction to Raymond, uh, this man. However, as the title might indicate, all that uh, seems wonderful and perfect in America is, is revealed to be quite much more uh, oppressive than that. And as the prying eyes of her neighbors and friends, her I should point out, very white, very straight friends and neighbors begin to turn their attention to what they see as a shameful interracial relationship. She finds a lot of uh, tragedy and uh, heartbreak on the horizon. It's a, it's a, a stunningly beautiful film, I find, uh, in just insane production design on Todd Haynes' part, because it should be pointed out that this isn't just a period piece. This isn't simply a film made in 2002, set in 1957. It's also a sort of formalist project on Haynes' part to replicate a Douglas Sirk melodrama. So the film uh, really sort of, I think really stands out for me in that regard as well, that he's invoking a film made in 1957. I mean, he's trying to make basically a movie in 1957, but it's 2002. Um, yeah, it's, I, I think, a, 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 a really, really just remarkable film and, and a very interesting and fun one to talk about. And uh, for Haynes as well, I think it's, it's, it's you know, it's a very important film for him as well because I think it really launched him into a more sort of like mainstream kind of attention. It really is a beautiful film and it, it has been a while since I've seen it. Like I initially saw it while on um, like a Todd Haynes kick, you know, however many years ago and it was nice revisiting it. And I, it reminds me of the fact that one of the things that both of these films have in common is that they are like each a part of their own respective informal trilogies. So An Autumn's Tale is a part of the Migrant Trilogy that Mabel Chung made. She made like three films about, you know, after the joint declaration with Hong Kong of migrants heading over to America and like making new life, um, former Hong Kong citizens. And then, as you mentioned, right, Far From Heaven comes from a really interesting line like a cinematic project i guess you could say like with none of the directors ever being in communication with each other but you've got douglas sirk's all that heaven allows which is the story where there's an older woman who's falling in love with a younger man who is her gardener and then being sort of like ostracized by the community for this very melodramatic very colorful as you said has a very similar visual look to far from heaven which is what he's emulating but then there, there was the other filmmaker, Reiner Werner Fassbender of the gauntlet fame <laughs> That's right. for, for Martha, who was also doing his own send up of, um, I almost said far from heaven, from all that heaven allows <laughs> when he did Ali Fearied's The Soul. Mm -hmm. And his reworking was the older woman who was falling in love with an immigrant 
in Germany and being ostracized for that own interracial relationship. So then here comes Todd Haynes colliding both of those films together using the formal approach of Cirque, the race element from the Fassbender film, and then also injecting his own perspective on queerness, which Mm -hmm. is like absent from the Fassbender film while, you know, it's also clearly Fassbender is a huge influence on him as a queer filmmaker. To me, Far From Heaven, it's just the genesis of that film is so unique because I can't think of any other trilogy of films that are out there that are just riffing on each other so lovingly and in such wildly different ways. Yeah, this week was very emotional uh, in, in a variety of ways. And I was thinking about, right, what is it about Autumn that, you know, attracts certain kinds of stories or filmmakers? And I mean, I guess it's fairly obvious. It's kind of a dramatic visual kind of setting, right? Like, uh, it's a very dramatic thing for the the leaves and weather to change and trees to to go bare, you know? And, And after this double feature, like... I didn't know whether I was ready to fall in love or watch my family disintegrate, you know? So I did think it was Maybe inter- both at the same yeah. time. Yeah. Well, right, yeah, or both at the same time. But yeah, it was interesting to me again, yeah, just just how dramatic, in a sense, you know, what's happening. Like, autumn in, in these films is a time of revelation and a mm-hmm. time of tumult. Um, so that was interesting, just thinking about that commonality. Yeah, I, I, I today as as I was like reflecting on both of the films before we before we all joined here, I was thinking, you know, again of fall as you know really a transitional season, right? It's it's the passage mm-hmm. from summer to winter, uh, and and in both of these films, I mean that's sort of what we're witnessing also on on that same note. This this idea of transition from you know, one form of existence to another, from from one country to another, from one city to another, from one idea of love to another. So I think, again, you know, Ryan, you said this blessed pairing, and yeah, both of these films, when put back to back for me, were, again, two stories of transition. And mm-hmm. uh, for, 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 I guess, one group, it seems to be a very positive transition. And, <laughs> and for another, it's, uh, it's a much more uh, ooh, uh, maybe bittersweet form of transition. Yeah, it yeah. turns yeah. out that uh, heaven doesn't allow much. No, no. no. Hartford, Connecticut seems to be as far from fucking heaven as you could possibly get. <laughs> yeah, and I guess, we, you know, I guess the obvious thing, too, right, is that... Uh, you know, Far From Heaven goes to a significantly darker place uh, than an Autumn's Tale, and as evidenced structurally by the fact that it does get into winter, right? Which is also part of the, you know, the original Cirque film where, yeah, you've got the the classic character having their low point in winter looking out of the the home as a prison as people ride by in a winter sleigh or whatever, yeah. you know? Uh, and you do get a little bit of that at, uh, you know, towards the end of... Uh, Far from Heaven, where it makes the transition. Whereas, An Autumn's Tale, strictly fall business. But it does get a little chilly, and I gotta say, I like the scarf representation, and I look forward to scarf weather. Yes, yes, (laughs) yes. Scarf is very prominent in uh, Far from Heaven. Plays a very pivotal role. Yeah, in in both films, scarves are heavily featured. But yeah, um, I guess let's talk about, uh, or I guess we can start with Far From Heaven, because I do want to, yeah, like, 
I'd seen it several times before, you know, over the years. And I remember seeing it when, you know, years and years ago and being totally blown away by it. And this time I was blown away by it, but for like completely different reasons. And I found mm. that to be an interesting experience because to me, it's all, it's almost like less Cirkian than than I remembered and on purpose. Like it's more yep. aggressive, it's more modernist. I mean, there are some some key differences in what he's doing. And I think a lot of people, you know, if they don't like this film, they criticize it for maybe, yeah, like mixing up the story elements, but not doing anything new with Cirque or whatever. And I disagree uh, with that because when I watched it this time, and it's in the film, I couldn't help but thinking about it like modern art. Mm-hmm. And for a film that is talking, you know, so much about surfaces and what's below, to me, when I look below, like, the surface of what's going on in this movie, I just see these lines and shapes and colors and compositions just in, like, a painterly sense that just, like, made me more emotional than the actual narrative because I'd seen it before and engaged with the narrative. And so, God, this time I was just, like... Ed Lachman, what's up, dude? Like, this is insane, (laughs) you know? And just, like, Mm -hmm. really just, like, taking in the images more than anything. I feel like the success of the film is definitely through all of its images because even returning to it this time, one thing I struggled with and then, like, eventually got over upon reflection was I, I there are things about the film that I find at least a little too easy or a little too calculated, right? I think it does fall into certain traps of like contemporary cinema of being like this plus this equals this but then as the film settled and was like sinking in for me it really is those images where all of the power comes in and like that is no easy feat just in terms of the way he's arranged all of that and like placed everyone there because the performances are really lovely and then like that coupled with the design choices and that the way just the film moves throughout those spaces and uses color to like cause all these like swells and frustrations and fears and agonies yeah i think i i would agree this time around for me yeah i think any movie that you watch multiple times i I shouldn't say any but you know great movies that you rewatch you you discover new things you connect with new things and i would agree with you marsh and i think ryan you're sort of saying the same thing but it was this time around when i found the heart of the film to be in that scene at the art gallery yeah where, mm-hmm. um, so there's a scene, you know, when Julianne Moore's character, you know, she's, she's sort of aspiring for a, 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 a connection with the world that reaches beyond this kind of, you know, very simple picturesque idea of the nuclear family in America, right? She, she is interested in modern art and she's described by her friends as, as liberal because she has sympathies for other people. You know, she, she sees herself as a sort of progressive person, right? And Mm -hmm. so she, she wants to go to this, this modern art exhibition and, uh, she, of course, invites her husband, Frank, but, you know, he's got um, much, much, much bigger things on his mind. So he sort of declines, <laughs> yeah. you know, and not like, ah. the, the son's football game, which is going on simultaneously that no one goes to. <laughs> right. You know, because <laughs> this is after, of course, that she's kind of like discovered his, you know, 
uh, his secret that he's that he's struggling with, or as he describes it, uh, his problem, right? Um, and she invites him to the art gallery, and he's just like, oh, you know, I hate that stuff. I, I'm not into that stuff. And so he doesn't want to go, so she goes by herself, and while at the at the art gallery, bumps into Dennis Haysbert, Raymond, uh, and, and they engage over art, and it's actually Raymond who, you know, offers his theory on modern art and and marsh how you put it is is almost you know exactly what he said so what's your opinion on modern art uh, it's hard to put into words really i i just know what i care for and and what i don't like this i don't know how to pronounce it Miro. 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 i don't know why but i i just adore it the feeling it gives I know that sounds terribly vague. No, no, actually it confirms something I've always wondered about modern art, abstract art. What is that? That perhaps it's just picking up where religious art left off, somehow trying to show you divinity. The modern artist just pairs it down to the basic elements of shape and color. But when you look at that Monroe, you feel it just the same. Wow, that's lovely, Raymond. And so, you know, really that, for me, again, rewatching it, I was like, oh my God, that's, yeah, that's exactly what's happening in this film, you know? Mm -hmm. So those things that you're talking about, Ryan, that are on the surface, you know, one could say at times, like, again, I could see why people would sort of be like, oh my God, it's so, you know, it's almost like too much. It's corny. It's like Didactic obvious. or academic as well as people right. have accused it of, of being, you know? Mm -hmm. Right. And that misses the point. Because, you know, this is really about, about feeling and, um, it, it, you know, it, it is at times you could almost say excessively obvious, but not in the way that, you know, Bordwell meant with Hollywood. You know, it's, <laughs> it's just, it's that, you know, Haynes wants us to just sort of like, yeah, okay, here it is. It's right in front of you. It's blue. It's night. They're sad or whatever. What was subtexted you know? Cirque is now text, right? It's there, right? The electric blue lighting that is so unnatural, right? He's sort of, yeah, shoving all this in our face. And it made me think, like, it's a dollhouse, right? If you go back to Superstar, the Karen Carpenter story, like, he mm -hmm. loves that shit. Playing with Barbies, yeah. like, designing the every room to every detail you yeah. know and i think what really also brought that you know uh, home for me was the very opening of the film which is something that i'd really kind of i guess ignored before not really noticed before but like the very first images of the film are of like leaves but leaves on a canvas painted and the film transitions this this painted canvas of leaves into actual leaves you know then we get the cinematography of of these these autumn leaves right and i was like it's a fucking painting come to life like that's what this movie is it's 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 painting that's been brought to life like we're we're going inside of this two-dimensional object on canvas and like mm -hmm. imagine if we went inside this world and everything was moving around now and that's why everything is so you know, you could say melodramatic, but also 
and and I don't mean this disparagingly, but you know, almost cartoonish. Yeah, in, in it's so stilted at the beginning. That's another thing. Again, like I think he's playing with dissonance in a really aggressive way because it gets like less stilted over time, and specifically her. But when Haysbert comes in, he like cuts through the movie like butter yeah. because he is acting in a completely different style oh, yeah. than yep. everyone else in the film. And I started to see, yeah, just more, more like how deliberate more of the, those sort of choices were, which can be alienating sort of the way that, you know, this, this little town is presented. It's, oh, yeah. Very mm-hmm. stiff. And, and yeah, it's very clearly like a design choice on his part, specifically those performances. Because I think that specifically Julianne Moore and Dennis Quaid, where they're very much, when they're stilted in these Barbie and Ken dolls that are like masquerading on screen in front of us and in front of everyone who's like sharing their lives with them, their friends, their their children, right? Like they're, it's all like textbook 50s mannerisms and like ways of speaking, mm-hmm. you know, telling her her boy to like wash his teeth and then the boy, you know, always saying like, oh, hello, pop, yeah. you know, things like <laughs> yeah. that. Um, but it's, again, it's, it's once reality starts invading the very intricately designed in a way like they're painting their own lives they're putting on this front you know the the 50s americana that's when their performances start to shift and i think that that's something that julianne moore does just so incredibly like specifically with her eyes i mean it's like kind of hard to put into words but when she is first starting to realize and like learn about what dennis quaid has been doing in his own time like when she is when she finally sees him like in his office when she goes to visit him and bring him dinner and she sees dennis quaid in the arms of another man and in a tender embrace right her performances starts to shift ever so gradually and like she herself can no longer put on the front and it becomes quite naturalistic eventually that's like that was something that really struck me this time was how the film is very didactic and stilted until it becomes naturalistic and like that transition is um really strange because then like that kind of is riffing also on the films that precede it too because you've got Cirque who is very much doing like a 50s melodrama um, in America as a German filmmaker. It's all heightened. It's all unrealistic. And then Fassbinder's doing the same thing like with Brechtian acting styles and riffing on his own Brechtian theater experiences. Well, if you think about it, right, it's like, you know, there is, a lot is sort of made in the beginning, right, that they're not just any ordinary suburban couple, they're Mr. and Mrs. Magnatech. Oh, yeah. They are f- featured in the advertising of the television, like, uh, you know, TV company that he works for because they're that picturesque. They are, like, from an advertisement. Mm-hmm. And then, right, it's like the whole film is like this thawing out of these sort of dolls to real people right shit over gets time. real yeah. <laughs> and shit gets super real and speaking of that another thing that i like did not remember about this film at all speaking again of like the divergences from melodrama is when shit gets too real haynes switches the sort of mode of filmmaking to a kind of like be horror kind of like his his segment in poison that's like this you know epidemic film or whatever 
he sort of shifts into that mode. There's this great moment in the film when Dennis Haysbert grabs Julianne Moore's arm outside of the movie theater. And all of the sudden, it's like noir, all canted angles, white people getting really worked up about this situation outside of the theater. You boy! Hands off! Yeah, you! Please don't. And it becomes a 50s science fiction film at that moment. And those, mm-hmm. like, formal digressions, I was like, oh, shit. And it's like, again, to me, I'm like, yes, I've seen Poison. I know he likes, you know, that sort of, like, raw, low-budget, 50s noir horror kind of kind of thing. And so all of a sudden, the movie turns into Invasion of the Body Snatchers for, like, 45 seconds oh yeah and then goes back into like graceful mode yeah but wow i was like oh my god yeah it's like much more varied than than i remembered really quickly at the risk of making like an extremely obvious joke uh during that sequence when he did grab her arm and everyone freaked out i imagined myself as a bystander saying don't worry everybody she's in good hands uh, oh god he's Stop the all state guy <laughs> Stop. <yourself. sighs> You're, in the, pe- you're in the penalty box for five minutes <laughs> yeah. now, okay? Um, the adults are going to continue the conversation for a little while. Um, but <laughs> yeah. uh, you do that, you go to the box, you know, uh, two minutes by yourself, and you feel shame, you know, and then you get free. Marge, but yeah, to, to your point, <laughs> I uh, I also noticed that a lot with... Dennis Quaid's character this time around that he has these like flourishes that are like horror and obviously because of you know his like existential horror that he's going through but like there's that amazing moment after they have this dinner party you know a lot of the the beginning of the film is wrapped up in like the preparations for this big dinner party catering yeah catering and and you know miss peacock covering the event you know the for the for the magazines and everyone wants to to peek in and and you know his accounts and it's portfolio season so there's a lot of like emphasis on this this big dinner that now dinner party that's now being sort of put together under this cloud of you know uncertainty and confusion within their home and you know uh, by this point dennis quaid's character has begun uh, heterosexual conversion therapy with Dr. Bowman. Yes. And so, you know, he's really working really hard. You know, he says to, uh, to, to sort of like put his problems behind him and to be this, you know, this, this masculine heterosexual man. And, you know, he, he sort of embarrasses Julianne Moore at the party. He, he's very drunk and, uh, he's, you know, and the funny thing was I wrote when they cut to him at a certain point and he's just like sitting cross-legged on the, on the couch smoking and just like downing whiskey. I was like, he's soused. I was like, that was the only word I can come up with. And then Patricia Clark Clarkson, who plays <laughs> Eleanor, Kathy's best friend in the whole wide world. She takes Kathy aside and she goes, your husband is, I've never seen him so soused. <laughs> And I was like, that is the only word to describe like how drunk Dennis yeah. Quaid was in this moment. But anyway, he, like he embarrasses her at the party, and then afterwards, you know, he's sort of sitting on the couch uh, in total darkness, but just with that blue light like washing into the room, and he's just sitting there like like a psycho killer, you know, and he's just like covered in darkness, and and clearly it's again this idea of like 
you know, what she hasn't seen that's inside him and, and perhaps what he himself can't see, you know, in this darkness. And she gets up at a certain point and she's sort of like putting glasses away. And there's this just amazing shot where then she kind of turns and it's revealed that suddenly Dennis Quaid is just behind her again, like in total darkness, just looming over. Dracula style. Yes, Dracula style. Yeah, and then he just yeah. like, she's like, oh my. And he just grabs her and then just is like, gives her this passionate kiss. You know, he's, he's like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to show you. I can, you know, fuck you like a heterosexual man. But of course, you know, quickly it all falls apart for yeah. him. You know? That's, <laughs> by the way, that shot is like a, it's like a 180 degree sort of long take situation as well. Again, yes. like this dramatic moment carefully staged as it's like, yes, he's revealed. And then they go down to the couch with the window in the background. Yeah, yes. It's and it's choreographed in the way that I'm sure his character, you know, Frank was in his mind sitting on that couch trying to choreograph how he was going to have sex with his wife. Yeah, you know? he's like a madman. Yes. You know? Madman man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. But like there's that moment and then there's even, you know, uh, moments later on when, you know, they go to, they they try to, you know, reignite the passion in their marriage with this trip to Miami. And again, he's sort of like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm cured, honey. Like, boy, I love you. More than any other, <laughs> any other woman <laughs> in the world, and all this stuff, and then like he he spies across the pool this like just beautiful young man and his family, and then you know he's sort of like oh I, honey I'll, I'll go up and get you this thing you know she forgot something in the room and he's like I'll go up and get it, and he goes up and then this other guy follows him upstairs and again the way. Haynes is filming it, it it's very like uh, psychosexual thriller at that point mm-hmm. you know it, it 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 it's not just this kind of melodrama anymore it it has some 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 much sharper edge to it that that you see in in those moments and and even you know with with a scene later on like you're saying the the young girl uh Raymond's daughter when she gets like beset upon by these these stupid racist white boys who start like chasing her around again like invasion of the body snatchers you know she's running through the streets to try and get away from them like yeah it's like the melodrama's like breaking apart in into horror because like the mm-hmm. melodrama can't deal with 50s racism, you know, or whatever, at least, you know, as the film is sort of positing, right? So it has to slide into another mode. Yeah, absolutely. It does feel like he's using specific modes that he feels are, like, only so far equipped to handle certain sequences, right? Like, and I think, Andy, you bringing up the, like, the Christmas scene when she does gift him, like, a group, like, of pamphlets for them to, like, oh, pick where you want to go. You want to go to Costa Rica? Do you want to go to Miami, etc.? That sequence is such a great example of that range of performance and both the the range of performance and the modes of filmmaking that like distinctly separate the sequences in the film. So like with that scene, you know, Dennis Quaid looks up at her and says something really corny about like, I don't know. Stan is always raving about Miami. Oh, Frank, Miami would be a dream. Elle says it's just darling. Everything's pink. Oh, really? Hmm. Maybe we ought to consider Bermuda. Oh, Frank, I do love you, darling. Oh, like, what a delight. What a, what a, like, a nice treat this will be for the two of us. You know, and think about that scene being so bright and colorful and Christmas, everything is sparkling. I mean, it's in a moment like that where it's extremely Circean. And then compare that to later in the film after the Miami trip when he comes home 
and just breaks down sobbing in front of her and the children. And Julianne Moore, like, takes the kids upstairs, like, tells them to leave, and then she's speaking to him, and the first thing he says is that he's fallen in love. Mm -hmm. And his performance all of a sudden is, like, unbearably real. It doesn't even resemble the character that he was playing at Christmas. You know, he, he breaks down crying, saying, like, I didn't know that this is what it feels like. And it's I like I started crying when that was happening yeah. and I wasn't expecting Dennis Quaid to like rip my heart out like that, especially based on how the film had been progressing at that point. Yeah, it is such an ugly cry in that mm-hmm. moment. I mean, it is like I was squirming myself like I forgot rewatching this. I mean, I remember when it came out and it was sort of like I think a lot of people were like, damn, Dennis Quaid, who knew like he had all yeah. this in him, you know, but it was like, yeah, rewatching it again. I was Obviously, like Julianne Moore is amazing in this. You know, Dennis Haysbert is a very underutilized talent. But like for me, rewatching it this time around, like the the journey that that Dennis Quaid goes on throughout this film, I think is is one of the most incredible um, in a film full of incredible performances. But like really, from the very beginning when we're introduced to him, calling her up from the police station where he's been picked up for loitering loitering right <laughs> yeah and mm-hmm. and it's an amazing moment because again little details that i didn't notice you know which was that she never actually looked at the police report she just immediately threw the police report away without looking at it what might she have avoided or headed off at the past had she read the the police right. report when he's sort of like trying to explain everything to her and while he's in the car and he's been picked up you know by the cops for for yeah loitering or whatever with another man and he's just like talking about how upset he is by the whole thing he's like boy it's really put me in a foul state you know like that's the way he describes what's going on you know (laughs) and then like she takes him home and he's so upset and she like tucks him in bed like he's a like he's a baby like she's one of the children he's just like thank you honey like oh and and she's treating him like a child and and he Mm -hmm. acts like a child, like this sort of like overgrown child. But yes, in that moment when he breaks down and and he's professing his love for another man and like really realizes what it means and is is obviously excited about this revelation that he's having, but also like so, you know, mortified by what this means for, you know, perhaps his career, but also his family and this, you know, this life that that he himself when he was soused on the couch says is all smoke and mirrors. Uh, when all, when the, when the smoke clears and the mirror shatters, like, yes, he becomes a real person. I was also thinking on that level of the phone call that he gives her later, like when he calls her up after he's like, we're getting a yeah. divorce and he's now living with this, this other man. And just the way he's talking on the phone is like, it was the first time I felt like, like he was a, an actualized human, like on the phone when he's like, all right, just want to settle this, just get this all done with. And you know, it, there's no more of that kind of stilted language and like, boy, gee, this, you know, it's very just, you know, almost contemporary like the way yeah. that he's talking on that phone. It's completely stripped bare. It's just him saying like, hey, does Thursday at three work? Yeah. You know, like it, it's none of like, there's no front, there's nothing going on. It's like, yeah, immediately raw and too real. And in that moment, you know, Haynes, ever the designer, has Quaid lit in a nice warm amber. Mm-hmm. And as it cuts back to Julianne Moore, who is just in some like, 
blue, yeah, cool, depressing boudoir, uh, yeah, <laughs> sort of image. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, I'm just thinking, yes, you know, this is this is it, right? It's it's he's now feeling the warmth, you know, it's obvious, but it's true. And it's such a powerful moment. And I was thinking about this. I think, you know, a lot of people have pointed out that obviously this is, you know, Haynes sort of redoing Cirque and Fassbinder and inserting that explicitly queer um, element to it. And I was thinking like watching this film, like, wow, it really is like overall much more depressing than all that heaven allows, you know, except for Frank. Dennis Quaid, the the most self-destructive character, right? The the gay character is the only one who seems to be like anywhere near any kind of good place at, at the end of the film. So like to see him go through that journey and be like liberated by it, like Haynes underplays it, but I found it, yeah, this time around really to be the heart of the film yeah. because the resolution of the Julianne Moore, Dennis Haysbert romance is, is not even bittersweet. It's just kind of bitter. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't have that note of grace that, uh, you know, Jane Wyman returning to Rock Hudson does, you know? Uh, it's just, she's alone, he's alone, that's it. Yeah. Yeah, he's he's literally run out of town on the rail, yeah. you know? <laughs> like, as he gets on the train and, and asks to leave, and they, they have that very painful and very abrupt sort of goodbye at his house where where, you know, she approaches him and is like, hey, my husband's gay and we're getting divorced, so I love you, let's run off together. And he's like, no, it's not going to happen. Right. You know, yeah. like, I'm sorry. And and then, yeah, you know, like, it's like for her, fuck, you know, you look at her and, and everything and she's just now alone in this big, dumb house with these kids who are are clearly going to grow up and need a lot of therapy, you know? Oh, my God. I That's another thing that I was, like, really honed in on is to keep up their lifestyle, they are absent parents. They're bad parents. Oh, yeah. And it is explicit at every turn of the film. They are horrible parents. Oh, yes. And the kids are like, as pointed out, yeah, like barely characters, but they are just getting <laughs> berated, sent to their room, told to shut up. Yeah. All of Mind their your mother. Yeah, all of their <laughs> issues are just, you know... Keep it to yourself. Yeah. Uh, and it is, yeah, it is a very toxic home. Even when things are going, you know, quote unquote, well, it's still, you know, it, you know, when one thing sort of like, you know, kind of prefiguring that he would do Mildred Pierce, but it's got like that at- attention to detail where it's like, yeah, we have this idea of the homemaker, but like it shows his fucking work in this movie, right? And there's attention to yes, keeping up appearances and going to things and civic groups and donations and caterers. They're always every scene they're talking about caterers, yeah, <laughs> um, for the next cocktail party or for this party or that party, right? And yeah, it just it seems exhausting. Oh you know? yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a very like you know just like a really intense militaristic 1950s like decorum and like disciplined structure that they've instilled on their children so every time that boy gives like a heck night go oh, hey, hey pop like do you want to hear about it? and then they just like, mind your mother like they shut yeah. him down and like and again like going back to quaid in those moments like i brought this up when we talked about you know um when we were doing like caught and we did you know fassbender's martha and, and we were we were talking at that point about you know for me how 
I, as I've gotten older, you know, and the more um, Fassbinder I've watched in, in especially his more melodramatic films in this kind of vein, um, I've talked about like, to me, the, the really black humor that I found in that. And I think we all sort of agreed that, you know, Fassbinder is also like almost taking it in this kind of like absurd dark comedy and rewatching this film this time around, I really picked up on that as well. Like I, I was like laughing at times with how over the top exactly that stuff that you're talking about was this time around to me and how it is this, this indictment of course of Americana and the idea of the perfect American family, but taken to such an extreme level like character turmoil the way everyone suffers in this movie at times for me was, was funny. And I don't mean that. And like, I'm laughing at them. Like, I do think that Haynes on a certain <laughs> yeah. level is, is finding some, some, again, like gallows humor in all of this, you know, whether it's, it's Dennis Quaid sitting there and like having to listen to his son talk about a football game and just like shaking on a couch, you know, like I hate these people I want out of this fucking place, but it's like, yeah, the caterers. And again, like Julianne Moore, like so many of her, you know, at least in the beginning, these kind of like very vapid comments that she'll make about race or about gender or about like, oh, I'm just, you know, just this like sort of housewife. Mm-hmm. And and I like that the journey that Julianne Moore, like he has some funny details in there where Julianne Moore does start to realize that the intimacy that she's developed with her husband isn't organic or like healthy in any sense like that she doesn't realize that something is off and that it is so plastic like Andy you had mentioned her like tucking Dennis Quaid into bed after picking him up from the police station and how (laughs) bizarre it is and it's just so strange and then there's that great sequence later when she's sitting with all of her gal pals and they're just like talking about how frequently they're like fucking their husbands and then like comparing how often other girls in town are like sleeping with their partners Yeah, and then Julianne Morris is sort of quietly like nodding and like doing the math in her head being like dear god yeah yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. exactly not even like close. i got, my stats don't resemble anything like this no not even the woman who's like oh once a week maybe you know once a month you know and she's like yeah she's sitting there just like smiling and again you talk about her eyes they just they go totally glassy they go totally vacant Mm -hmm. but with this like fake smile she has to plaster on of being polite you know i mean that whole scene is incredible too because again from the design standpoint like that scene is introduced to us when all of them these four women are standing outside again in that like burnt orange and bright red foliage of the autumn leaves and they're all wearing red and and just the color coordination of like we're all we're all on the same page. We're all the same person. We're all the same thing. And then yes, they go inside and they start having this conversation about sex and she just totally goes like just completely hollow in that moment. I mean, it's incredible. I love their matching outfits as a crew because again, it implies so much about, yeah, like these are the in colors of the season, right? So when they're at the art museum, they're all wearing shades of green uh, as opposed to before when they were all wearing red and they're always on the same page again everything is so performative and rehearsed or planned yeah that conformity taken to that level again of like surfaces and colors and forms and shapes it's so yeah i mean it's hilarious at times images like that i mean and to you know 
there was there's a lot of like negative space and empty frames that he's also kind of like playing with you know certain times where like you know character exits linger on the flowers almost in kind of like an ozu meditative way but again yeah it's like we like we said it, it's like it's a fashion show but it's also a painting come to life or both yeah. and again right when when we talked about that like the the shit getting real the performance is becoming more naturalistic it's also when the color drains from the film like mm-hmm. in in those final several scenes like all of that color is gone. Yes, we've gone through winter and we're now sort of at the tail end of, of this, you know, very obviously painful winter for Julianne Moore's character. But man, the town, comparing the images of the town from the, the start of the film to, to now the end of the film, it's just fucking gray. Her world now is gray. And as Dennis Haysbert, you know, her, her unrequited love takes off on the train. Like, yeah, it, the film suddenly becomes like monochromatic. And again, thinking of, of our lives as these sort of like transitions and seasons and things that we go through, you know, fall for me has always held promise. I don't know why, but fall for me has always held start of the school year. Perhaps. Promise. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe because <laughs> in one form or another, I've been in school my entire fucking life, either as a student or a faculty member. So it's always like, you know, January isn't my new year. And I, as you would agree, as a, as a professor, right. like September 1st is the fucking start of the year, you know? And and you look at it with such hope and promise of, you know, this year's going to be different maybe. And I'm excited for it all. I'm, I'm recouped and I, I feel so much better after a little summer break. And now I'm ready to get to work and fall. And, and, and that's sort of when I feel like I bring so many of my hopes and, and resolutions, you know, for, for a better life. And I think I brought that into the film this time around being that we're also doing this like in fall. So, you know, for Frank that, that he does transition, that he does like, you know, come to terms with who he is, that he is like given this sort of warm light at the end. And for her, like tragically now she's just in a, in a, colorless existence however you know? i have a new reading on the ending <laughs> we're probably i was thinking the same thing go ahead well <laughs> i was just gonna say that it's the beginning of imitation of life right so in the end now it's you know julianne moore and viola davis who plays sybil the maid it's them and they're gonna start a very successful uh sort of pancake uh, operation or syrup <laughs> situation uh, and that's why we get the little you know the little bud at the end on the tree uh, symbolizing yeah maybe a new beginning because yes it's now gonna be imitation of life yeah wow yeah you took it a step further than I did that's a quite nice and very um, perceptive I was just gonna superficially say like well you do get to see a flower <laughs> well yeah because no, it is that yeah. shot right it's in the modern monochromatic like gray sludgy winter but the camera does like pan a little bit and then a white flower enters the frame those new buds which to me was a hopeful sort of suggestion at the end like you know she's learned about intimacy and maybe can carve a new path for herself (laughs) or just make pancakes yeah i mean like that bud at the end is i guess it's kind of yeah this extremely ambiguous thing because Really, you know, emotionally, I felt, yeah, like very down on, you know, Julianne Moore and and Haysbert, where, yes, Quaid may be the bud, but man, again, this, this film, the title says it all doesn't end up really in a good place. Well, and obviously it's been like written about and discussed by a lot of people who really revere this film and respect this film for like 
um, it's it's really poignant exploration of of race, of gender, of you know sexual orientation, that sort of thing. But like again, you know, we we haven't really discussed it, but like one of the like more painful aspects for Julianne Moore is that there's a sort of like hierarchy of prejudice that kind of also gets established by yep. like small town America in the film where like, you know, Frank, who has basically admitted and, and fully revealed to her that, you know, he's, he's homosexual. And, you know, there are people in the town who sort of look down upon that. Like he goes in at a certain point when there's whispers amongst the town people about a potential interracial romance. And he's like, how dare you? <laughs> you know, he's like, what, how, you have any idea how this is going to make me look and my, my career and all this stuff. You, you wouldn't believe what Dick Dawson's been saying around the office, oh, you know, yeah. <laughs> fucking Dick Dawson, this guy. But it's like, yeah, you know, he is able to, to, to sort of like go and and be free, you know, and and he does like bye to this fucking family. See, ya. I'm gonna go like live my truth, and I'm gonna love it, you know, and it's gonna be great. But she is gonna be forever tainted by the shitty people in this town, and and it's also revealed not just the whites, you know, like the pain that Dennis Haysbert runs into when even, you know, his fellow... Yeah, he's seen as, yeah, like a race traitor as well within his own community, right? Because people are, like, throwing rocks through his windows. Yeah, and she's like, oh, I can't believe whites, these assholes. And he's like, it's not the whites throwing rocks through my window, you know? Like, when they have that moment where he takes her into the to Egan's restaurant, this sort of basically, like you know, black restaurant in, in, you know, outside of the city and he walks in and it's like immediately everyone in there, their eyes pop. And like a guy like grabs him by the arm at a certain point as they're like walking to their table. He's like, what the hell are you doing? You know? I mean, it's like their sin is presented as like, which isn't even a sin because they haven't done anything, <laughs> but just the very suggestion of it. Yep. Like sets everyone in the town ablaze with, with, uh, just absolute disgust or, or, you know, an inability to accept it. Like, okay, being gay is one thing, but this is absolutely outrageous, you know? And like, <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a classic case of, you know, uh, the left not being able to ally with each other. Look, we could have had oh, yeah. in this film, <laughs> women's liberation, black liberation, queer liberate. We all could have, we all could have done the damn thing, but instead Society was too powerful. Yeah. We we had to wait for George Romero's uh, fighter yield uh, motorcycle troop to present us that true utopic society where race and gender are totally leveled, you know? Well, yeah, as we're talking about autumn as this season of transition, we can transition into um, our other autumnal tale and autumn's tale yeah i mean you know i do agree with you know what we've been saying like our read on um the way the seasons function in both of these movies because this film is also about a transition in terms of like transitioning from one country to another and you know at the beginning of the film we have our hero jenny uh, as she's like chatting with um, her mother and they're talking about like her journey over to the states and 
it's full of like uh, amusing details like them just like you know immediately setting the stage of being like oh like this guy vincent like you don't want to be dealing with this dude like he won't even pick you up from the airport like what what do you see in him but she's like prepping all her little dolls that she's made for him that she's going to give to him as a gift and then i love the like you know just like the cultural transition gag of her like getting on a plane to america and her mother's like oh why don't you bring this barbecue duck on the plane and she's like i know it's gonna be in that like it's a 20 hour flight you're gonna be glad you have the barbecue duck and then it's (laughs) like cut to her immediately like just stuffing her face with it in the plane yeah like, wolfing it down yeah, yeah i w- the idea of having barbecue duck on a 20-hour flight sounds really nice oh hell yeah but yeah so she does you know in that opening scene uh or the, the that opening sequence when she does arrive to america she does meet chow yun fat in a like a, an extremely comedic sequence where they sort of park illegally to pick her up in front of the airport and in order to feign ignorance about the parking situation they all imitate that they're speaking japanese to like the airplane assistant uh and then they like sort of cart her in and like bring her out to the to the car well we should point out too i don't think we've said explicitly that they're like related uh in in a certain way like they're like uh, distantly yeah they're like distant cousins like they say like he's like their fourth aunt's or she's the fourth aunt's 13th niece yeah um and Mm -hmm. so they are related and even before she goes right they're setting up all these expectations and it's like oh yeah you know your relative like they call him uh you know figurehead because he's like very prominent in the community Mm -hmm. he lives like a king that's what they said lives like a king and of course it turns out he lives in a tenement on like you know like in manhattan somewhere and there's just so much great characterization in that early sequence where you've got chow yun fat uh who's hanging out with his two buddies um cow and bull and like we get his you know ramshackle car where in order to sit inside of it you need to hold the passenger seat door closed (laughs) in order for like not to just like fall out of the car as they're driving around and obviously yeah he's like uh, an ex-sailor that runs around and gambles uh, with his bros when he's not like you know doing waiter jobs to survive, right? It is it is funny that they like they they do that. There's that like sort of counterpoint of them saying like, oh, you know, the streets are paved with gold in America. Wait till you see like figurehead. You know, he lives like a king. And obviously the point is that he isn't a king as he rolls up in this busted ass vehicle. But I couldn't help but thinking like that was king shit. Like yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Like throughout the movie, I kept thinking like this is king shit. Like you know, yeah, he is like totally hand to mouth and just basically a street hustler and like a fucking gambler to make his living. But I'm like, man, everything he did, I was just like, king. And I'll be king. honest, like his apartment is fucking sick. I mean, like other than the, the the fact that there was like a gas fridge that almost killed them at a certain point. Yeah. Otherwise, like it's a nice spacious place. Yeah. For what I'm sure he was paying in 1987. That what would have been a steel rent control on that thing, you know. I mean, but it is a dump. It's like a squalid tenement yeah. where something or someone has spray painted uh, "capitalist theft" on the wall yep. uh, in the hallway of their of their tenement building. Yeah, it's the kind of place where the train passing by is so loud that she can't quite hear the instruction of like keep the fridge closed because when the fridge is open, gas leaks in the apartment. You know. Yeah, this is also right a, a Brooklyn Bridge film because they are right next to it you know in in the world outside and and ostensibly inside the train is yeah like running one foot out there out their window basically that's always like rumbling the entire place uh and there's so much good like texture like that i mean 
this film is full of just like kick ass guerrilla independent filmmaking from the eighties. Like they're just going around grimy New York. And, Amazing location work. Yeah. I mean, really, like for for an outsider's relatively speaking sort of view of New York which, you know, reminded me of other, like, Hong Kong films I'd seen from the 80s where they have, like, sequences in New York City where they clearly were like, we're going to go shoot for a weekend in New York, and they try to, like, mm-hmm. snatch up location shit. Like, this was also from the perspective of, like, an outsider who has been living in New York. So the, the, yes. the detail of these, you know, weird little spots that, that she has found, you know, to say, like, okay, we got to shoot here, we got to shoot this, you know, like... I was like just really amazed by by that, you know how how impressive the locations were. In that, you do have these bits that are like yes, the idealized sort of vision of New York, especially for an immigrant, you know, of like the Brooklyn Bridge and this and that. But then, street level alley kind of shit, you know, just just well, there's no real alleys in New York City, but you know what I mean, like just that mm-hmm. gritty sort of you know the back streets and the little nooks and crannies of these little sort of godforsaken areas of New York City. Yeah, she gives so much personality to the spaces, and I love, I would love to have had um, figurehead Chow Yun-Fat sort of like spruce up apartments that I've lived in that I haven't loved. There's like oh, yeah. a really fun sequence when he's like trying to make the space more homey for her, and he like converts the bathtub into a desk by having like a big, like a platter of wood like over it that he then like makes a hinge and paints white. Um, king shit. Then eventually, <laughs> king shit. King shit. He like has like a lovely painting that he sets up as like her new window. It's like here, no, now you get this beautiful view of the Brooklyn Bridge. And I love that because that that whole sequence, yeah, of like him kind of like helping turn her like house into a home or whatever you want to call that sequence. She she sort of asks him like, hey, do you know where I can find a bookshelf? And he's like, fuck that, I'll build you a bookshelf. And she's like, well, you know, someday when you have time. And the line, I loved it. He says. <laughs> A real man doesn't say someday. He says today. You know? Yeah, <laughs> like, that's his mantra. Shit, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that is quite a contrast to the other main man in uh, her life. Jenny's boyfriend from Hong Kong who has been living in the United States and going to college. Uh, that's sort of like the, the the sort of beginning of the movie, right, is her running and rushing to meet Vincent, finding out he has another girlfriend, Peggy. And they have this uh, great sort of lunch sequence where they break up. And I was fucking howling because this sequence includes Vincent is basically like, hey, this is America, baby. Like, we're, you know, we're, you know, people are liberal minded over here. Look, I'm just, <laughs> hey, I'm having a good time, you know, no hard feelings. And, and he tries to break up with her by being like, look, I'm just setting you free. Yeah. He, he blows it because he, he quotes Woody Allen. Right. Well, that, and that's, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's where I was getting because, yeah, this is the ultimate like red flag moment when he, in justifying the fact that he cheated on her, he says, <laughs> What should I say? Remember what Woody Allen said? A relationship is like a shark. And he like quotes Woody Allen further. And I was losing it. It like reminded me of uh, Joanna Hogg's The Souvenir when the guy at the beginning is, is meeting with the girl and he goes, 
yes, I like Powell and Pressburger. And you know you're just, <laughs> this guy is is a, is bad news, oh, yeah. you know? Yeah, immediate red flag. Yeah. This, yeah, oh. hysterical sequence, because then throughout, we've got Figurehead, who is, like, acting as a waiter at this restaurant, and he's just sort of interjecting himself and fucking around <laughs> and creating this uncomfortable tension for her. But it also, you know, he's doubling as this... Uh, like a really earnest protector in a way that I didn't find exhausting that were like typically like a, a like a macho man or a dude is trying to position himself as like oh don't worry honey like I'll take care of everything I'll take care of you he like does this really tender supportive guidance for her throughout the film in general because he's just so easygoing and he's so helpful and um it's like this courtly affection that that yes. he has for her you know he is this mm-hmm. you said protector and yeah this kind of like this this knight but but maybe a more sort of falstaffian knight perhaps you know a bit more uh a bit more like rough around the edges and a bit more you know maybe his armor is is not so shining and i think so much of that comes from from just like chow the god like he is mm-hmm. he is an incredibly charismatic presence you know yeah and none of it is based on like any sort of power relationship between the two of them he makes it clear throughout in any of these sequences that you know they're on the same level he just wants to help out because he cares about her it doesn't come from any sense of him having like a superior set of skills as a guy who's lived in america for longer than she has or just being a man in general he does you know? have like a like this this very immigrant American kind of like rugged individualist kind of vibe because right his whole thing is yeah he's it's kind of like tough love it's a courtly affection on the one hand but he's also like yeah you do whatever you got to do shit for yourself you need to learn this or whatever you're so, a strong independent woman yeah, now. You're, exactly because once she's done with Vincent he's trying to like convince her of her self-worth as he's sort of falling in love with her on the side you know and and so is she to him so much so much of this film really is yeah it, i wouldn't say it has like a plot uh, that has any sort of goal right she's just kind of trying to make her way and and so it's like mm-hmm. money becomes a problem with tuition because she's studying acting at university and and yeah it's just him sort of like you know helping her through that through her doing babysitting jobs on long island which is where some of our finest autumn leaves come in there are some nice you know sort of like uh you know city park leaves and such throughout the film but we do get a couple scenes out on long island and it's even remarked upon in the film by chow uh he says you know late in the film uh, oh autumn on long island pretty nice oh yeah, yeah. um so <laughs> they go out there yeah and then there's yeah we could talk about her sort of life as a babysitter which is like part of how she's trying to pay her way and and again a a a testament to chow's like absolute like s-tier charisma because when when jenny first shows up to this this home of a of a wealthy family you know she's sort of running late and she's a little bit behind on it and the the family's not too happy and she gets introduced to the kid who is just this total spoiled rich fucking brat that wants her grapes peeled you know right away right away she's just like peel my grapes for me or whatever and then like chow who is also sort of tagged along you know he just like goes in and completely fucking wins the girl over and now the kid is just like 
Chow turns the kid into also like, hey, be cool, kid. Like he he does that little gag with the with the seeds, you know, where he throws a bunch of seeds in his mouth, chews them up, and spits them out. And then the girl just starts like laughing uproariously. And now it's just like this perfect little happy little group that they have. And it's just fucking chow, you know? Like, mm-hmm. I mean, I gotta say it. I, I'm, you know, I've had a lot of crushes on actors and and you know people we've had in this in this in this uh, podcast that we've been discussing. But like, man, my my um, absolute adoration of of Chow Yun Fat like knows no bounds. And I will I will say that his his charisma I have it on good authority. Like it is not just uh, on screen. One of my first classes I ever took in college, my first film class, I've probably told you this, was a was a class on Hong Kong and Asian cinema. And my professor, her name was Patricia Brett Ahrens, she had taught at the University of Hong Kong for a while. And she was very well connected because it was a very small and and very, you know, there was a lot of, like, just everyone knew each other in that community, she said. And she told me that one night at a dinner party, she got to waltz with Chow Yun-Fat. And she said oh. he was a remarkable dancer and the most charming man she'd ever met. So it's, it is like, <laughs> it's, ever, I mean, this guy is for real. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, he's like on, uh, on record as being a man who like lives very like simply and within his means and donates the majority of his fortune to, to charity. Yeah, salute to Chow. King shit, dude. Uh, Absolutely. King, king shit. <laughs> we love Chow. He's certainly much more noble than the father of the girl that they are babysitting. Um, and that is like a source of drama in the in the midst of the film where Jenny is is as she's standing in as a babysitter, her the father that she's working for is also like running a restaurant and he's like suggests maybe that she could start working there. And then it uh, it clearly like very quickly becomes a predatory situation mm-hmm. where you know he is like inappropriately flirting and like touching her and to the point where then like she uh, is sort of like sent away by the mother you know because they're saying like this won't work out but that does lead to another sequence where chow does sort of sense that something is off and he goes to check in on this restaurant that she says like i'm gonna start working at and he's like oh like i'll swing by you know like don't worry about me i won't make a big thing of it and there's definitely like some class tension in that sequence because here he arrives and you know he's struggling to figure out what he should get and everything like that the the owner like buys him a real fancy drink and he tries to like drink it sophisticatedly but then he's like later looking at the menu and just tells the waiter you know oh just uh you know whatever you think is best something simple then he something (laughs) simple right and then he gets you know so how does this look sir and it's just like ludicrously expensive even by today's standards (laughs) of just like what like this horribly fancy meal that he obviously can't afford but he sticks with it he doesn't make like a big stink about it i was trying to do the math on that because i was like this is 1987 and that's $150. I think it says like $150 on the check in 1987. So I'm like, what is $150 dinner uh, in in today's standards, you know, for the 1987 prices? And I was like, it's probably like a fucking, like a $300 dinner or some shit yeah, like that. Yeah. yeah. Oh my God, man. Yeah. $361.22. That's what I just found <laughs> uh, on a quick search. Yeah, fuck, man. What the hell? <laughs> Yeah, and he's just stuck with that, too. He's got to play it off, as you said, like, oh, cool. Like, oh, of course. Yeah. yeah. I'll, I'll take it. And that doesn't even include the fancy cocktail he got. Hell of a, that's a pricey meal. Well, that's what you get at Big Panda Restaurant, you know? <laughs> yeah. And that place, too, right? There's a couple shots where it's, like, low angle showing you, like, the banner, and it's right, you know, uh, 
in like the cityscape uh, right there. Uh, and so, yeah, it's supposed to be like this fancy place. But, yeah, the guy's, uh, guy's a big piece of shit. They call him like dirty old man. Isn't that what they start calling him? They refer to him mm-hmm. as the dirty old man. And when Chow, of course, like discovers that this guy has potentially through his ulterior motives and his, you know, dirty old man, you know, BS, uh, you know, fucked up Jenny's job, right? Because Jenny ends up getting her babysitting gig taken away because of this guy, right? Yeah, and her job at the restaurant. And her job at the restaurant. Uh, so then Chow, like, again, in this, like, protector mode, just decides to go fucking full hard-boiled on the guy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and rolls up and just kicks the shit out of him in front of the restaurant, you know? Just, like, absolutely wails on the guy and beats his ass. But what I also was, like, amazed by <laughs> was that... After, like, Chow kicks the crap out of him, he's just like, okay, you're right. I feel sorry. You know, I'm here. And he, like, gives her, like, money and is like, I, 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 I feel so bad about what I did. I'm like, holy fuck, like, he didn't just call the cops? Like, Chow, you just, like, fuck, just fucked him up in front of the restaurant, you know? And, like, knocked sense into him. Like, there's nothing that Chow can't do. <laughs> My favorite part of the movie is when that guy, the, yeah, the, the dirty old man... Uh, when he like is approaching her in the backyard of his house, he says, uh, "Have you ever been to Lincoln Center?" Uh, yeah, oh my God. <laughs> another awesome red flag uh, in New York uh, reference. You know? uh-huh. <laughs> Which, by comparison, you know, like uh, when she even brings up to 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 you know Chow's character Sam, like, "Hey, uh, we should go to the opera or something like that." You know, we should go to Broadway. We should see some of the shows, and he tells her. What does he call it? He says Yankee Opera. Disgusting. Yeah, disgusting. Like, no, who the fuck wants to go to Broadway? Like, it's a, again, he's like got all this like that's what tourists do, you know, like all that shit. He's like, no, nah, you want to see the real New York? Yeah. Like the guy who spends you know twenty hours of the day in a gambling den. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's the real New York, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, I was, it just occurred to me that so he there is a lot played to the fact that he was a sailor for like thirteen years. So the age difference between mm-hmm. them is is kind of a conflict as well. I mean, I think in comparison to to, uh, Far From Heaven, this film does deal with, yeah, like what's acceptable, what's acceptable within this community, what's acceptable in Hong Kong. Like there there are those sort of like the rules of the game being played uh, sort of between them. Because at a certain point, like that affection does start to become more you know, present, and she even picks up on it, right? Because she says, like, I'm pretty sure he's falling in love with me. And she's the one then who goes, like, but... Yeah, and he's, yeah, he's a goddamn sailor. My original point was was going to be (laughs) that he is adrift, right? That's who he is, you know? Mm -hmm. He spent all this time at sea, he fights, he gambles, he loans money to the boys, he's like helping his friend start a restaurant, he's helping him deal with uh, being extorted by like a gang in in Mm -hmm. Chinatown. So again, he is like, yeah, this protector of multiple people, and similar to Robert Mitchum in The Lusty Men, he doesn't care about money. Mm chickens today feathers tomorrow he's going broke every 10 minutes in this film he's getting a new car all this stuff he takes a lot of like serious like financial losses in total stride (laughs) yeah Yeah. that was one thing i was like remarking on too when i was watching it was like 
fuck, man. If I just like said that, like that meal, if that had taken a bite out of my wallet that way, I would have been crushed. And he's just sort of like gulps once. Yeah, and is it's like, like the that. last money he has. He's just like doing <laughs> so. He you know looks tough in this restaurant. Yeah. Basically, he leaves it all on like the the the, the gambling table multiple times. Yes. And then, like you said, yeah, doesn't even blink when his buddy's like, "I need two grand to pay off these like <laughs> these gang members or whatever." And he's like, "There you go," and he hands the guy a bigger stack than he's holding of his own cash. I mean, it's amazing. I think the point isn't necessarily even that he doesn't care about money, but that the relationship he has with money is very different. Yes. Mitchum's relationship with money mm-hmm. is very different. Like they understand its value. They understand what it can do, but it's like, you know, like you said, it's like he, he recognizes its impermanence. Like he doesn't hoard it, you know, yeah. the way that others do. Cause he says that at a certain point, right. Where he's like, when I die, I want to have no money. You know, I want to have spent it all. Right. What <laughs> makes the most sense, you know? Yeah. yeah I mean, yeah. in America, and, and again, like, bringing both the films into, into you know, conversation, like, both of these films do in their own ways play with obsessions with, like, money and status and stuff like that. Obviously, Far From Heaven, set in 1957, is playing with, like, Eisenhower's America. But, but here we have Reagan's America now. Yes. And there's... Obviously, at certain points, like Reagan is actually like, you know, he's he's called upon or he's his name is is, is called upon by yeah, at least like twice. Yeah. yeah. You know, there's that point when Chow's driving around in like this really shitty convertible that's like falling apart. And he's like, you know, same as Reagan's yep. <laughs> he's like this yeah. Cadillac or whatever. That's <laughs> just like she's like, there's a hole in the floor, you know. I mean, but but like you said, the, there's so much. I noticed so much graffiti. There's the capital theft. There's shit written on the wall, but the S is the dollar sign. You know, there's a lot of that commentary, and he is this presence and a character that that is is sort of like, yeah. If we if you if you buy into all that, if you if you fall into that trap, like you are gonna go nuts. You are gonna lose your soul. You are gonna become one of these horrible people you know dirty old man Mm -hmm. or this ridiculous boyfriend that you have um and so he chooses not to not to you know what is it don't live in the world don't live of the world kind of thing you know like yeah yeah i mean he's like actively rejecting the type of designed life that we see in far from heaven and he understands why that that type of intimacy is poisonous and doesn't work out and specifically within this film his understanding of money in a way where he won't allow money to corrupt the, the way he, just his personal relationships, right? And, you know, you're talking about, like, the Reagan-era graffiti all over New York. It just, like, kind of reminded me in my head of the, not necessarily graffiti, but the notes that he leaves on the mirror in their apartment building. He, like, le- he has, like, sort of mantras that he writes down about, like, how to live life. Well, and- that's, like, yeah, he had a certain point he decides to, like, shape up or ship out. Yeah. Because he wants to, like, win her over, and he's thinking, like, yeah, I can't really just be, like, drifting forever, right? Uh, and then he turns to the mirror and what does he write yeah he well he has his like his goals and commandments and i mean the one i remember is him saying if you want it go for it (laughs) and 
the reason I remember that one so vividly is because this film has, I think it has, it has to just be like the best near kiss in a movie ever. The scene where they oh, when come they're like home. drunk, yeah, yeah, they're like drunk and they come home from like having a lovely day out together, where it's just so clear, like it's like pure cinema love um, that's like you know lighting up between the two of them, and it's this wonderful long shot of the two of them just sitting next to each other and kind of. They're clearly like starting to get on each other's wavelengths. Their body movements are becoming more and more in sync. And there are probably three near kisses where like Chow is like going for it. And he does sort of like fail on his own mantra of if you want it, go for it. But it's also because she, Jennifer, is like stuck herself in trying to figure out in this transition into America, into this new life, this idea she has and what her life should be and how she should live it. Um, and then all of these outside forces sort of guiding the way she's living her life as a student, a foreigner in America. She also can't quite like go for what she wants or she doesn't know what she wants specifically. Um, and yeah, it's just like simultaneously such a tragic and beautiful scene. Yeah. I mean, in in some respects, and you know, maybe it's simply because this, on a certain level, it feels like a, you know, and it's meant to be a more sort of realistic depiction of romance and love. You know, um, it, it did at times like affect me. I think a little bit, a little bit more. You know, because I think with Far From Heaven, you know, you're playing with you know. Um, you're playing with some sometimes really big ideas of of what love is, but here, you know, you're really looking at just like two people who are like, oh, they they should be together, you know. It oh, seems yeah. like just so much more, you know, because the the performances are more naturalistic and you know just just more more human and less sort of like archetypal and and um, and grand as they are in in Far From Heaven. In that scene, Ryan, that you're describing, like. Chow's performance, I mean, really shows you the depth. I think, I think he is he is totally misunderstood by people who only see him as this sort of like John Woo action, you know, figure or something like that. I mean, he is a, mm-hmm. he is an actor of like tremendous range, whether it's whether it's action or drama or comedy or in this case, like. Yeah, this all of the above. All of the above. Well, yeah, I mean, he does do all of it in this movie, but but yeah, even in that moment of just sort of like Chow the God, like can't just kiss this. Like, yeah, he's just a guy, and he's just like, ah, fuck, man, maybe it's not right, and I shouldn't go for it. Like, it's so touching. It really is. Like, it's a beautiful scene. I want to point out too that. Uh, what he writes on his mirror that Ryan alluded to earlier reminded me similarly of other declarations made by uh, immigrants on this podcast, like in Police Beat. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's a very similar situation. And in uh, this film, Chow wrote, uh, it's like his like five commandments, and they're like, quit gambling, quit drinking, quit smoking. Diligence is the key to success. Get the green card, then the gold card. Wear shoes, wear socks, speak grammatical English. If you want it, go for it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. And that's like, again, it's so telling of yeah, his just kind of like relentless, upbeat attitude, especially as he starts to focus himself. And it also becomes very touching because he develops this sort of dream he has with Mm -hmm. Jenny they're walking along the beach and he tells her that you know in his perfect world he would open a restaurant on the beach in New York 
where he can look out at the Atlantic Ocean and she helps him come up with the name for it and it's sort of yeah dangled out there as this this sort of goal that this driftless character eventually kind of forms because of her because she is making him like yeah want direction and want roots for the first time and i love god i just that day they go on like that you know the classic romantic day they're like a lovely fall day yeah it opens like it starts with like a tilt up from autumn leaves on the ground and it tilts up and they're playing baseball in the park and he's got a Mets cap on through like this whole sequence and they get a New York slice and they shove it in their mouths while they take like a horse and carriage ride home at sunset. Which he refers to, uh, he calls the pizza Yankee Pancakes. (laughs) (laughs) Hell yeah. Um, So yeah, it it really is very, yeah, it is very moving and emotional in general. Like I, I wrote that down just several times watching just like how much the emotion really was like getting to me. And especially as the film further develops into a sort of more like ironic kind of uh, situation at the end, which, you know, uh, I don't know if we want to talk about it right now, but. Oh, Henry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. There's, yeah, there's a moment, you know, when, uh, again, this film, so many good like incorporations of objects and like meaningful things, mm-hmm. like, the mise-en-scene incredible like the sets for their apartments upstairs downstairs is its own like sort of world of artifice that's totally designed as opposed to this the realistic sort of shooting on the streets of of new york kind of thing and so yes she has a watch from her grandfather yeah it's a lovely little watch but it's a watch that is suffering from having a uh, a, a, a wristband in disrepair right yes. and there's a sequence when they're going around and you know she's got these dolls and she's trying to sell them and he's just like sort of helping her collect funds so she can get ready for school and she passes they pass by an antique shop and they see this beautiful gold wristband um, designed that would fit just perfectly with her watch and they they notice it in the display there and she's like oh that like I want to take a look at that and so then like you know the cranky or well I guess not quite cranky but like the charming like creaky old man who's running the antique shop in New York opens it up for her takes out the wristband and she flips over the price tag eight hundred dollars damn not a chance in the world again by today's prices woo. <laughs> that's what like sixteen hundred dollars i also thought that was like pretty shocking too because it didn't seem like it was like a real you know that you got a, a wristband that's gonna be worth uh 800 bucks you'd think it would be like a little more high security like as if it was jewelry inside but it does it's just like out in the open in like a little glass case on the streets of new in york a, in a seedy area of new york <laughs> <laughs> yeah but um so she does leave that behind obviously because she can't afford it and then we gotta know, talk about the party yeah yeah, Before you're right. we talk about anything else, <laughs> that's the big moment. And this is uh, his birthday party. Well, right? his birthday party, but she doesn't know that because he's sort of like, no, home- yeah, no one knows. Oh, really? No. Besides his homeboys. Yeah, it was like his boys know. Yeah, his boys know it's his birthday. But, the, but his boys aren't of- at the party. It's like her friends who right, are at the party. That's right. 
Yeah, he's just trying to throw a nice little party, you know, they're trying to just have this little party. That's all it seems like to anyone at this particular moment, you know, it's just this, hey, we're going to have a cool backyard party, you know, me and the boys cleaned up the backyard, you want, you know, and they invite her, you going to come to the party or and every, everything and, and, uh, they just have like a kick-ass fucking backyard oh, party. God, it's awesome. People were going up to him at the grill, and it's like he's like steak, and he's just putting steaks on people's plates. And I was like, this party rules, man. It's a huge buffet <laughs> of like PBR and hamburgers. Oh god, that party kicked ass. But that's when the boyfriend, the or the ex, I guess you could call it, Vince, yeah. like shows back up. And, you know, is trying to re he, you know, Vincent is trying to reignite his relationship with her like clearly you know mm-hmm. he flamed out of boston or whatever you know and uh right and the girl that he was with that uh you know he was trying to have this this new sort of liberal relationship with by the way did you catch the moment when they 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 run into them at the park when they're on their date and she's sitting on the bench vincent's new girlfriend is sitting on the bench next to him and she's reading lonesome dove whoa <laughs> she's reading a copy of lonesome oh dove. i didn't notice that i was, was just like laughing oh at God. that that girl might have had some depth to her that was unexplored. But yeah, he shows back up and, you know, Sam Chow, while he's working the grill at a certain point, you know, and feeling like, hey, I've got something going here. I'm I'm also cooking up a love affair with this girl. I'm cooking up a new relationship. He looks over and he sees now Jenny and Vincent reconnecting and it really messes him up bad. And, and uh, you know, he has been described by himself as a very impulsive person, you know, as someone who needs to act on whatever he's feeling at that moment. And so in that fit of, I guess, jealous rage, he decides to sort of lash out. He has to do something. He has to act out to make himself feel happy. He keeps using that phrase, happy. And he storms out of the party or sneaks out of the party one way or another. He he leaves the party and, of course, goes to a gambling den and starts throwing it all out, you know, just to feel something. Yep. Then he goes with his boys to uh, fight a gang, and uh, that goes uh, well, actually. Yeah. I, I thought does, I was yeah. kind of scared. I thought for a moment that we could have been entering some kind of, like, tragedy situation. Yep. Um, and good on the film for making me believe that, like, anything could have happened at that moment. I mean, it's... But it is Chow Yun-Fat we're talking about. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's true. So there was never in doubt, you know? But yeah, this is, again, this... <laughs> they just they stomp that gang, dude. They it's beat amazing. the shit out of him. They get so liquored up. I loved that sequence where he's just like, you know, he's so heartbroken about this girl. So what does he do? He's like, I'm going to get the boys. First he goes gambling, loses all his money, <laughs> then just pounds beer with his buddies. And they pile into that shitty convertible. And they're like, let's go fight that gang. You know, <laughs> it's just like stomp this gang, dude. And they're like singing songs together, like riding on this convertible. I was like, dude. Yeah, and that's even after this extremely like tender moment as like 
the rowdy boys are pulling away from like the tenement building uh, and he's like seeing her and Vincent and he keeps looking back and it's this really wonderful like drawn out moment that just like blows time into the glances between them. It's awesome mm-hmm. and then they yeah and then they go and just beat the shit out of these Dude, guys. They fucking stomped them. It was awesome. Yeah, well it's a, yeah, that is a really tragic moment because then she runs out into the street to go after him to stop him from going out gambling and getting rowdy with the guys and he looks back noticing a car that's approaching and he clearly wishes he could have been down there with her and then like pull her away and embrace her but instead Vincent is the one who comes to the rescue and gets her out of the way of the approaching car and then like Chow then sort of like sadly turns his head and faces the direction he's going with all the guys. It's the moment when you really also see how he's he's also a very self-destructive character you know because this Mm -hmm. is a moment of sabotage it isn't as if in that moment jenny's just like running back into vincent's arms like but but jenny's also looking at him and being like this is the guy that i'm gonna build a relationship with this is the guy that i'm gonna settle down with who who just flies off the handle at the slightest thing and decides the best way to handle it is to go get into a gang fight (laughs) (laughs) yeah it like rhymes with the following morning when he returns from uh, his rowdy night. And since he's been away uh, not that long, uh, Jenny has decided to uh, move in with the mother and daughter that she was babysitting for as she sort of like runs into them on the street and is offered her job back in like a room in Long Island. I think the presumption is that there's been a divorce or a separation of some kind Mm -hmm. and she's like oh well yeah like i've got all these like awful men in my life i'll happily come you know live out on long island with you uh, (laughs) as i continue my studies and right so then that builds to their sort of confront not even confrontation but them seeing each other the following morning uh and which leads to him chasing after her in a car just as she was chasing after him uh in a car the night before And to bring up, yes, the gift of the Magi element, in all of this zaniness of this, like, last 24 hours of the film, Chow goes to get the the watch uh, wristband for her. And right as he did that, I was like, I see how this is going. You know, this is just like uh, in the Sesame Street Christmas movie when Bert and Ernie you know, gave each other, uh, what is it like? Yeah, like the, he sells the soap dish and the, the rubber ducky and the, the box for the paper clips and the paper clips, you know? That's where my mind goes every time. And I, I sensed it and I was like, oh shit, we're headed for this just like horrible, bittersweet, ironic ending. And that's pretty much where it goes as, uh, right, they exchange gifts and she rides off vincent's giving her a ride but they are by no means together it's funny i didn't i didn't see that like gift mix-up coming um only because like i probably didn't have that formative childhood experience of seeing the sesame street uh, christmas special (laughs) with that mix-up the gift of the magi in school yeah yeah, also yeah i know we did not read the gift of the magi in school but yeah it is it's so sad because right like i mean yeah it is this like classic tragic irony um, and what does she she gives him she gives him the watch itself and that's like that beautiful cross cutting when she opens up his gift and it's the wristband and then we cut to Chow Yun Fat opening up the gift she gave him and it's the watch and then so like both are now completely functionless uh, because they belong sentimentally together 
I gotta interject here though for a second because everybody's making such a big deal about her stupid fucking watch when Chow, in my mind, had the far better timepiece. You remember his little Casio watch oh my that God. also was a suck a fucking cigarette lighter? Yes. Yeah, that's he true. kept lighting his cigarettes with his fucking watch. And I was like, you know, and he's just like, wow, what a beautiful watch. I'm like, fuck that watch. Yours is yeah. a lighter? I've never seen a fucking watch that's a lighter. <laughs> yeah. And like, oh, hey, full disclosure, I'm a smoker, so I was just like, my eyes were fixated on his uh, cigarette watch, you know? I was like, this thing is amazing. I'm like, fuck. Yeah, that shit was cool. Yeah, screw her bullshit. I want the fucking cigarette lighter <laughs> yeah, watch. I was obsessed with that watch. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I get yeah, I'm it, surprised but, she would have really thought that he wouldn't have, have wanted it. Like, he clearly is a guy that's got like a, you know, a nifty-ass watch. I don't know why she would have thought that the sentimental one would really strike a chord with him that much. Talking about Chow Yun-Fat and his relationship to money, you know, in order to get that wristband, he first shows up with just, like, some money, and he's like, what do you think? And the guy's like, no, I'm not going to be able to make this work. And then he's like, well, you could just take the car and then all this other stuff that I've got in my arms right now. <laughs> like, um, And the guy accepts, but it's like, there you go. And that's why Chow then has to chase after the car at the end because he's now, you know, without his vehicle. He was giving up all of the resources he had just because he wanted to finally admit his love for her. And it should be pointed out that he almost catches up to the car due to his savvy years of, of hustling on the streets of New York and his, his excellent yeah. knowledge of shortcuts. He actually, on a foot chase, almost catches up to the car. I loved that sequence so much. He, it's just Chow Yun-Fat running, and that's it. And I was like very moved by it. And I love the shot that it ends with as he is like running on the on ramp to like mm-hmm. some other more busy road. Uh, and he just, you know, he, he can't make it. He stops. He kind he, he got close. Very all close. things considered after all that running. And as he stops and turns around and walks back towards the camera, all of a sudden a parade of taxi cabs just appear in the frame and start to like line up and drive by him on the right side. And it's, you know, one of the many moments of just sort of like natural kind of amazing shit that happens in this movie in the Cosmic background. Or, yeah, yeah, exactly. But yeah, the film could have very easily ended there and it would have been a beautiful ending. But we do get a little bit more when the film flashes forward and she's on the beach with the girl that she babysits and now lives with <laughs> in Long Island. Time has passed, and she's, like, sharing stories about, you know, her her first days in New York, and she says, you know, like, oh, I had a friend that, you know, whenever I see this beach, I think about how he had a dream of opening up his own restaurant uh, right here looking out on the Atlantic called Sampan. And then the girl says, oh, yeah, you mean uh, that one? <laughs> she just <laughs> points straight at it, and it's, like, right in front of them. And then she's like, oh, damn. Yeah, I'm like a peer. Like, like, whoa, he did like it. the yeah. only thing on the beach. <laughs> it's, like, screamingly obvious, like, the thing, like, immediately yeah. on the horizon in front of them. But, yes, right, so she does walk up to the pier, and she sees Chow Yun-Fat now, like, extremely successful with his, like, modest, you know, Pier restaurant, looking and, very you know, debonair he, oh, in yeah. a suit. Very. He's lost debonair. the scraggly sort of facial hair he had in his like you know scummy phase or whatever. He looks like he looks like James Bond. Yes, he really does. And then he delivers the final line in a very James Bond. I guess a Bond in a very very Bond fashion. Where he says, "Table for two." Uh-uh. <laughs> yep, and then it freeze frames, and uh, yeah, I I gotta say, Ryan, thank you 
thank you for introducing us to this movie. It was uh, such a pleasure. It was such a pleasure. I guess I'll just like say like Andy, congrats. You know, you certainly won the autumn leaves um, in terms of like just the number of leaves on screen. Oh yeah, I mean, Marsh texted me when I first was like, "Yeah, fucking far from heaven," and he just replied, "Leaf City." <laughs> like, Leaf City. <laughs> One of us I knew like had to pick something that at least was Technicolor or simulated Technicolor autumn leaves in New England. You know, I think that's like key for the prop. So I'm glad we had it. But um, yeah, Marsh. I mean, these. Are the films we picked uh do you have any other autumnal favorites well i also want to congratulate you guys on uh you know i realized i've thrown out two seasonal uh topics already in this very short run right i i threw out summer and autumn and uh i just want to say congrats to you for not picking ozu or romare because you had options for both and that would have maybe been a, a just a fine and gr- good thing to do right uh, good movies but you've done the less obvious thing and and i appreciate that and similarly i want to do that for for my pick you know i could certainly say something like an autumn afternoon but what fun would that be but ryan you spoiled uh, my pick and you had brought it up you know during the week but i was going to say the trouble with harry because the Hitchcock film from, uh, you know, 1955, it's one of the Hitchcocks I saw most recently. I had never seen it until last year. And it is uh, like Haynes's film, like deliriously artificial and playing with that foliage and those colors. It's about, you know, a bunch of town, you know, townsfolk in Vermont who find a dead body and they just have to deal with it. And it's a kind of, you know, it's an offbeat Hitchcock. It's more comic than it is uh, thrilling, but I found it to be, yeah, really, a really wonderful film. And it's, you know, I love to just leave, you know, leave some for the road. You know, I know guys like Ryan, they like to pound a whole director's filmography. <laughs> but no, you know, I'm I'm getting older. I'm watching Trouble with Harry for the first time. And I like that. And it's got great, great sort of foliage stuff, as Ryan pointed out. Yeah, they brought in the like fake leaf, <laughs> fake leaves situation because yeah. uh, it's Hitchcock. You know, yeah. what else are you going to do? So, yeah, that's uh that's that would be you know one to look at if you're looking for uh, that blend of autumn and artificiality that we here at the Gauntlet love so well. All right, uh, this week it was my turn to pick, and next week it's Andy's turn to pick. So what are you uh, what are you throwing down? Well, I was um, sitting in the alley next to our. Um, the building where, you know, most of our classes take place downtown. And I was doing what I often do, you know, having a cigarette and some coffee and scrolling through, you know, the internet and looking at the news. And I was reading the BBC and I came across this, this article, um, from like two days ago, this just (laughs) happened like two days ago of this, this majestic, rare white deer, a stag that had gotten loose upon the streets of Merseyside and police, you know, the British police or whoever, the authorities were, were trying desperately to sort of wrangle this thing and bring it in, but couldn't. And so after they felt that they had exhausted all options, they shot it and killed it. They euthanized it on the streets of Merseyside. This, this like seemingly extremely rare, you know, just singular 
creature, this beautiful white deer. And you can go look at pictures of it. And I, I'd never seen a white stag before. And it's, it's amazing. It looks like a mythic creature, you know, it looks like something out of like Tolkien, you know? And of course the English just fucking shoot it, you know, they just, they blew it. <laughs> Seems far more like an American police kind of thing, you know, <laughs> than the British police, you know? Yeah. But I was just like sitting there and I was remarking on it. I was like, God damn. I mean, what a beautiful animal. So in honor of this rare white stag murdered by the Merseyside authorities in England, I'd like us to, to, to take a week to, to explore all God's creatures, great and small. So bring me pictures about animals, a beautiful animal, preferably. All creatures, great and small. Beautiful. I, I love it. Can't wait. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Gauntlet Movies or send us an email at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone.